during the COVID pandemic that quickly concern for people's mental health became kind of about equivalent of a person's physical health. You know, all at first we were all like, okay, this virus, what's it going to do to people? And suddenly after so much isolation, people started saying, this can't be good for people experiencing so much isolation. So you had two main concerns rising during COVID, physical health and, mo- and mental health. So during COVID and continuing on, you saw a lot of studies were rising up of how does so much isolation, how is it impacting various people groups? And so as they were doing the study, they kind of expected that the population that would experience the most difficulty would be the older population. Maybe the population that is not working or maybe that is in a nursing home or doesn't live with a bunch of family and friends. They were really concerned about the older population, think this would be big, most impactful on them. Especially considering a lot of people are saying the older you get, the more at risk you are for COVID, so don't visit older people. So the studies were all expecting the older people would have the most isolation and loneliness. But a lot of these studies were, were finding that the younger generation was actually experiencing the most difficulty with isolation. Some studies were targeting that the age group from 18 to 24 were experiencing some of the most drastic results of being isolated and not being in community. It was kind of interesting to watch these studies target different groups of people. But overall, these studies were saying everybody was experiencing the negative impact of isolation. So the purpose of these studies was kind of like, what are we going to do in the future to kind of mitigate the long-term damages? But what was interesting is in the research, they started to realize this, this crisis of isolation and loneliness started way before the pandemic. That people have been experiencing a lot of isolation and loneliness way before the pandemic. It was suddenly COVID was bringing things to light that some people really didn't see before. It's becoming very evident that we live in a culture that has been defined by loneliness and isolation. So you wonder, why are you talking about that today? I'm talking about loneliness and isolation because that's one of the motivating factors I have for doing a series on spirituality and sexuality. Part of my motivation to do this is so many people are experiencing a deep lack of disconnection. So many people are experiencing a a, a lack of connecting with other people or a lack of community. And people are really looking for relationships. People are looking for community. And they're looking to the church for answers. People are looking to the church saying, what is your, what is your input into this crisis of loneliness? And as a church, as I said, we need to be a safe place where people can find community and learn how to live in community. But the church, the world's also looking for answers on spirituality and sexuality. They want answers on the questions of identity and on questions on gender. And as a church, we need to be speaking into culture, not just reacting to culture. And I know sometimes you're like you're talking about gender and sexuality, and you're like, I don't get it. You watch the news, and it can be overwhelming. And I understand that. But even if we don't have answers, we need to be able to engage in a dialogue that shows love and compassion and kindness. The church can always enter and be showing love and kindness instead of just resisting to even enter in the conversation. So last week I started this series on sexuality and spirituality, and I got a lot of really interesting comments. Thank you. I, I like getting comments after a series. And, and as you know, I, and I explained in that, the series, sometimes it's hard to define the word sexuality. 
The hard thing is that so many people use the word sexuality, but they don't have like a really good definition of the word. It's kind of a popular word in our culture to talk about sexuality without actually knowing what is the definition. So I introduced the definition for the word. So some people came to me and said, hey, I like that. I didn't really have a definition, and you gave me one that's helpful. Some people said, you know, you gave me a definition, and I didn't really like that one. I think that's the wrong one. Can I have a different one? And some people just commented, you know, this is kind of an interesting series because I don't know what I think about a lot of these topics. In fact, I had uh, one person bumped into, uh, go to a coffee shop I frequently go to, stopped me and said, you know, he said, I don't go to your church, but I'm going to start listening to the series. And I listened to last week because I, I just need to know more on this. And People don't talk much about sexuality. So we're staying in this series because I think we have a lot to learn and a lot to teach and a lot of culture that we can influence. So once again, I want to give you my definition of spirituality as well as sexuality. And again, I need to give you the two disclaimers. Number one, sexuality is much more than we do in the bedroom. Sexuality is much more than what we do after we put on wedding rings. If we limit to the definition of sexuality, what happens in the bedroom, we're missing a big part of this conversation. After all, we have to remember that even celibate people have a sexuality. Second thing is, because of our sexuality is influenced by so many different components, each person's sexuality is going to be unique and different from another person's. So in one short sentence, this is my definition of sexuality, and I did this last week. I'm finding I'm going to do it again this week because a lot of people had so many questions. I hope to answer them in my introduction. Our sexuality is about our deep desire, longing, and need to connect to other people. That's your sexuality in one sentence, a deep longing and a need to connect with other people. And this is where people started to have questions. This is where people have questions because we understand that, number one, sexuality is not all about intercourse, but it's always about connecting with other people, platonic relationships or romantic relationships. Every person has a sexuality that drives us to connect with other people. It can be purely friendship or it could be purely romantic. Your sexuality doesn't turn off and on based on the number of the people that you are intermingling with or forming connections with. So this is a big question. Why is it called sexuality if it might not include intercourse? Why? That seemed to be the big question. It's simply because it's called sexuality because we are all sexual beings all the time. All of our relationships are done with other people through our whole entire being. One part of us doesn't turn off and on because you're different with different people. The Bible says in Genesis, we are created in the image of God as male and female. Therefore, we have this part of our sexuality that is with us at all times. So the essence of our sexuality is that deep desire that we have to connect with other people. It can be romantic or it can be completely social. And sexuality doesn't always mean it is sexual. It's just a term that is used in the psychology world to understand that longing that we have to connect with other people. So second, our spirituality is a deep desire that we have to connect with God. Sexuality, the deep desire to connect with other people. Spirituality, the desire to connect with other people, to to God. Our desire to know and be known by other people is simply a gift from God. 
It's a good gift that God has given to each of us that we would desire to move out from just ourselves to have friendships, to have community, to have uh, friendships with other people. That is a gift from God that he's given to us. And so we need to celebrate that gift, thankful that God has given us a desire to be in community, to want to have lunch with other people after service, to be a part of a church community. That is a gift from God. But what makes our sexuality unique is that it is driven by, number one, the gift from God to form community and have relationships. But it's also fueled by many factors like your values, your beliefs, your upbringings, your various desires, your orientation, your relationships, your gender, your thoughts and your feelings, your past experience. All of these things go forth to influence your sexuality and how it presents itself. See, just like, rake, uh, just like lakes and rivers and streams, they have all have different tributaries to form the volume. That's the same thing with our sexuality. Every one of us has various tributaries that are influencing our sexuality that will influence how we relate to other people and connect with other people. I think all we know, if you have negative things that happen in your life, they will turn up in your relationships with other people. So that is why we're talking about this so much in church. Because not only do we have a deep desire to connect with God and a deep desire to connect with other people, but we often have these tributaries behind us that are influencing our behavior in ways that we do not like. And that needs to be addressed. Now, I want to let you know this is not a series to talk about what you did wrong. This is not a series about sexual ethics to have a dialogue. And I can assure you this is not a series that would want to make anybody feel shame or embarrassment. Instead, this is a series on God's desire to see us all grow healthy and have strong and meaningful relationships with God and with other people. This is a series on God's plan of redemption and wholeness that he has for each and every one of us. This is a series on God's plan to do for us what we cannot do on our own. And this is a series that would focus on the dreams and desires that we all have that sometimes seem to be so out of reach. And finally, this is a series on the joy that is set before us. You may wonder, what is the joy that's set before us? I love this quote by Jay Stringer. The joy set before you is to heal the wounds of your brokenness recognizing that they do not have the final word in your life and open up a new map to travel to the places you've always wanted to go. That's a beautiful quote. Heal the brokenness in your life so you can travel to the places that you've always wanted to go. This is a series on community. This is a series on forming a community in your relationship with God that will influence all other relationships that you have. And the best way to heal your brokenness is through your covenant relationship that you have with God. So now how does this happen? To answer the question, I want to look back at the Old Testament to see a reflection or a picture of what Christ is doing in your life right now. So if you were a Jew living 2,000 years ago in the days of Jesus or maybe living in the latter part of the Old Testament, I can tell you what you'd be doing this afternoon. After you leave church today, you'd be going home and you'd be building your Sukkot. Sukkot is a Hebrew word that means a temporary tent or a temporary dwelling in your backyard. For the early Jewish followers of Jesus, this is a time of year that you'd build this little tent in your backyard and you and your family would start living in that tent for about 10-day period of time. And you're like, why would you do that when you have a perfectly good house? 
God called the Israelite people to do that because it would remind them of how God took care of their ancestors years ago. It was a reminder how God was committed to the people in the past. And sometimes you look at the past and see what he's done for you. It gives you faith to what he's going to do today. So you might remember the Jewish people when they were wandering in the wilderness, they lived in a tent. And so God said, put a tent in your backyard and you live in that tent and you remember what it was like for your ancestors. But the beautiful part of a tent, it's a reminder that God wanted to dwell with his people. Because remember, they would, put the they would put the Holy of Holies in the middle and everybody would put their tent around that. And so it's this annual reminder. And it also reminded you that life is temporary. So all these Jewish people after church today, you're going to go home, you're going to build this little makeshift tent in your yard, and your family's going to be living out there. Even today, some of my Jewish friends or some of my Christian friends that practice a lot of Old Testament traditions, they're building these little tents in their backyard, and they're probably not going to sleep in them, but they'll be having a lot of dinner parties in their tents. So it's kind of a cool way to remember. Now, the Jewish people are really busy during this time of year. In the fall, they have all these festivals. Right now, what I refer to as Sukkot, which is the Feast of Tabernacles. But all their big, all their big festivals start about two weeks earlier. On the evening of two weeks ago, Sunday, it was uh, September 25, you might remember I referred to it here, it was Rosh Hashanah which is the very first day of the Jewish calendar. Now, this is a very important day for the Jewish families. You were required by Old Testament law that you and your family had to go to Jerusalem to celebrate Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is basically New Year's Day for the Jewish people. Some people refer to it as God's annual wake-up call. So all the Jewish people would assemble in Jerusalem for the one reason, number one, God called them. And if God called you, that means he wants to do something outstanding in your life. See, a lot of us, we like New Year's Day. A lot of us, we make New Year's resolutions. It's just in us. Like, we all do it, and we all know that they're going to fail, but in a couple months, we're going to do that again. See, God knew for the Jewish people that they wanted to set some New Year's resolutions as well. So he gave them a lot of instructions what to do around Rosh Hashanah so they would actually make resolutions that would actually work and have impact. So this Jewish calendar would start out with these two days of just festivities of meeting for, before God. And then for the next 10 days, it was called the Days of Awe. And during that 10 days, it was a time of serious repentance that the Jewish nation would all get before God. They would repent for their sins, repent for the ways that they've walked away from God. But more important than just repenting for your sins, during that time, you ask God to break any cycles of your sin in your life. You ask God to show you, why are you sinning? Why are you engaging in this kind of behavior? Because they understood that repentance is more than asking God to forgive your sins, but it's actually about walking into a different direction. So during that 10 days, the Israelites were very serious about identifying sins and identifying patterns of sin. And then on the um, 10th day of uh, the days of all would be Yom Kippur, which is this big day, the biggest high holy day of the Jewish calendar, where they would, um, they would have a sacrifice as an atonement for their sins, and the whole nation would celebrate that God forgave your sins. And so the whole goal of Rosh Hashanah, of the days of all, all having the little uh, fest, the, the sukkah in your backyard, was to restore fellowship with God. Because they knew once your fellowship with God was restored, it would influence every other relationship in your life. That's why they would meet in that backyard in that tent, because it was a time to celebrate with family and friends. You have your relationship with God restored through the days of awe and Yom Kippur. Now let's work on restoring our relationship with our family and friends and everybody around us. That's why we talk about 
the Feast of Sukkot today. Because we recognize in order for us to have good relationships with each other and with the community around us, it is going to be driven by our fellowship with God. So why am I bringing this all up? Because it helps us to see what Jesus does for us each and every day. As New Testament believers, we don't need to follow the Old Testament feasts. We don't have to participate in them. But it's smart for us to look back and reflect on them because it shows us what God did in the past and it shows us what Jesus is doing for us today. It encourages our faith to look back to see what did God do because you know what? He's doing the exact same thing today. God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Even though we're not participating in the Old Testament feast, God's participating in them through Jesus for each of us. You look at Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, that's like our salvation experience through Jesus. It's like that annual wake-up call where you wake up to the reality of you have sin in your life and you want God to change your heart. The second thing, the days of all, that is like your renewal process. That's like your sanctification process. And Yom Kippur, that's, that's like what Jesus has done for us. And then Sukkot is that daily reminder that God has a covenant relationship with us, that God has entered into our life and that he wants to dwell in us and that he wants to bless us with deep intimacy and restoration that will impact our life but also influence our relationship with other people. And that is why we're pausing today to look at the Old Testament fall feast because it reminds us of what God has done in the past to encourage us what God's going to do today for each of us as well as what he's going to do for us in the Stello Grove. That God's desire is that we would be a community, that we would build fellowship with other people so they would feel that they have a safe place to be involved and to discover who Jesus is. And God is doing that to each of us plus giving us confidence in our calling. So if we are going to fully understand our, our sexuality and spirituality, we have to understand what are the things that are holding us back. See, that was such a big part of Yom Kippur in the days of, 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 of awe that the Jewish people would often say, what are the strings that are holding us back? What are the things that are preventing us from moving from the fullness that God has for our life? Are they internal vows? Are they sin? Or what have we done that the strings that would just hold us back? And I think you guys know what that feels like at times. You feel like I can't move forward, that there's something holding me back. And that's a good question. What is holding you back? What are the strings that are holding you back? That's a question that we all have to answer. But today I'm not going to talk about that. Because sometimes that can be a troubling thing to think, what is holding me back? You don't know. Instead, I want to talk today and close my message out with, what is God going to do about the things that are holding you back? What is God going to do about the things that are influencing you in a way that's preventing you from having deep community with God as well as other people? And I want to leave you today, and I want us to leave today with the confidence that the God of Rosh Hashanah is working on your behalf to change your life and to change the trajectory of your life. But first, I want to look at some challenging words that Paul gives to us in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, chapter 12, verse 1 to 2, Paul says this, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all that he's done for you. Let them be a living and a holy sacrifice, the kind that he finds acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And then you will learn to know what God's will is for your life. 
which is good and pleasing and perfect. That's an interesting progression. Do you notice he said first, let God change the way you think. And then you will learn God's perfect will for your life. So often we get so focused on our behaviors, and that's okay to do, that we forget that God is trying to get us to change the way we think. He's always trying to get us to change our perspective because he knows if you change our perspective, you change the way we think, it will always influence all of our behavior. You know, help us understand his will. But see, this is a challenging few verses. In this verse, Paul is saying to people, the way you live your life is, a, is an offering to God. Basically saying, if you don't do some of the bad things that you want to do, that's an offering to God. That's a good thing to know when you're struggling with a sin or struggling with temptation and you say no. That is an offering to God. God is pleased with it when we stop and say, you know what, I want to do the wrong thing, but I'm not going to do it because I know God doesn't want me to do it. That is an offering to God. That's pleasing to God. He's grateful with that sacrifice. He's honored with that sacrifice. And I think we all do that every day. And that is great and it's wonderful until you do some things that you know you're not supposed to be doing. And then it's easy to feel so guilt and condemnation. Or it's easy if you're in a season of repetitive sin or repetitive behavior, you feel so overwhelmed with guilt and shame. Sometimes it's hard to even crawl out of that place. I want to give you a quote by Eugene Peterson that I find so comforting. I think it's a beautiful quote that is kind of a little alarming. It's one of those quotes you have to chew on it for a while. This is a good quote if you are struggling with a repeated sin pattern, or maybe you have a child that's struggling with a sin pattern, or maybe a family or friend that you get really worried about them because they keep doing the same thing over and over again, and you're worried about them. I like what Eugene Peterson says. He said, Christian churches are not, as a rule, model communities of good behavior. It's a little shocking. As a rule, we're not model communities of good behavior. They are rather to be places where human misbehavior is brought out in the open, faced, and dealt with. That's just a beautiful reality of what a church is. A church isn't a bunch of perfect people trying to pretend they're perfect each week. In fact, that Romans 12 verse, a few verses after what I read, will say, don't pretend. Stop wearing a mask when you gather together. Not that. No, no, I walked into that. Whoa. Um, <laughs> be honest. Well, how did I do that? <laughs> oh, man. He's saying, be who you are. Don't pretend you're somebody else. There we go. But I mean, I like that. That's a picture of a good and a healthy church. We're not pretending we're somebody else, but we're honest that we are people that deal with challenges. Sometimes we do the right thing, and sometimes we do the wrong thing. But the reason that we can do the right thing, the reason that we can have confidence that our behavior can be an offering to God is because of this covenant relationship that we have with God. That our relationship with God is not this contract that he says, okay, Jack, this is what I'll do for you if you do this for me. Instead, God is a God of covenant that even started in the Old Testament with even the Garden of Eden where God comes in and says, look, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'll dwell with you and I'll help you do things that you can never do on your own. This is what I'm requiring of you. You need to be honest. You need to be honest about your situation. Believe in me. And surrender to me and let me lead your life. That's our participation in a covenant. We just say, I'm going to believe in Jesus. I believe in God. I believe in the wages of sin is death. I believe that I'm a sinner. 
And I believe that God wants to help me in this situation. That's a beautiful thing about a covenant with God. And he comes in and says, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. And I'm actually going to live inside of you. So from the very beginning of your relationship with Jesus Christ, God says, I'm going to accommodate every single one of your needs. If you're worried about the things that are influencing you, this is where covenant relationship with God comes in. He says, I'm more concerned than you are. This is God reaching out to you and saying, I'm going to do things for you you could never do on your own. This is kind of a simple message I'm giving today. It's really not that complicated. It is the core message of the gospel that God does things for each of us that are beyond what we could expect or imagine or hope for. That's the confidence that we have in a covenant relationship with God, that even though God has called us to really high standards, even though God has called us to do things that are beyond our ability, he is working in our life on our behalf. And that's the whole heart of all these Old Testament feasts and festivals, that God is a God of compassion. He calls his people to him, and he's always going to work on your behalf despite your inability. So on the one hand, covenant is this beautiful promise that you don't have to be perfect to receive Christ, that you don't have to be perfect to get your way into heaven. You don't have to be perfect, that you can be honest. But at the same time, what's difficult is sometimes you want to be perfect. Sometimes it's a struggle. You're sick of doing sins. You're sick of having struggles. You're sick of being tempted. And this thing is, sometimes God, when you come to Jesus, he removes desires, removes temptations. You feel like you have this abundance of freedom. And then there's other times you feel like, is this ever going to end? And it's a difficult, all of us find ourselves in that place. Some things in life are easy, some things are still hard, and sometimes God keeps them there because he wants us to rely on him. But most importantly, what God is going to do is he's always going to mitigate any influence or damage that the enemy can do to us. Mitigate's an interesting word. And I'm going to close this message quickly for the sake of our potatoes. <laughs> mitigate was a word that I didn't know much about until I lived in Central Florida. 18 years ago, Becky and I and our two kids and one on the way moved to Central Florida and quickly we learned what, it li what life is going to be like living in an area that gets hurricanes. I think we all watched on TV what, that hurricane a couple weeks ago, but we lived about a couple, five miles from the ocean. So quickly we realized, you know, Florida basically is uh, always up at risk for hurricanes. So one of the first things that happened to us when we moved in our house, we, we had to have our insurance inspector come over and they did a wind mitigation inspection. Again, mitigate means to make less severe or less serious or less painful. So they would come over and do a wind mitigation inspection, which Becky and I are like, I have no idea what they're going to do. But they come to your house with all these little tools and things, and they walk around your house to determine how wind is going to blow around your house. <clears throat> how wind would impact your house. They do studies like how strong is your roof? How strong are your trellises? How many miles per hour wind can your garage door handle? How much, how much, how much uh, impact could our windows in our house withstand? The fact that our house was a concrete house, literally our house, this is a little trivia here, is, is just poured concrete. I mean, our house was like six inches of poured concrete with like these heavy-duty windows. So this whole inspection is determined, how is your house going to stand during a hurricane? And your insurance is cheaper based on, <coughs> based on um, how wind-resistant your house is. So 
So at the end of the report, the inspector would tell you exactly how strong your house is going to be and what your insurance rates are going to be based on the wind. And they would determine factors of the age of the house and the, the, the building codes, as well as, you know, the swing sets you have in the backyard and the potted plants you have around. Like, you know, if a hurricane comes, you got to bring this stuff in the house. But it's a beautiful report to get. But the biggest thing that would determine uh, mitigation was actually the positioning of your house. See, sometimes when a hurricane would come or a tornado would come, different, degree, different ways that would come in, it would, dip, dip, it would influence the, the positioning of your house. Sometimes your house was safer with a hurricane that would come off the ocean or would come off the Gulf of Mexico. But it always, always would come down to the positioning of your house. And I so often look at that wind mitigation report, and I think that's the exact same thing that the Holy Spirit does for each one of us. In fact, as you live in Florida, you are going to experience a windstorm several times a year. Sometimes they're tornadoes, sometimes they're earth, uh, hurricanes. It's going to happen. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are going to experience a windstorm in your life. You'll experience in hard and difficult things, trials and persecution. But God comes in with his Holy Spirit and he does a mitigation report. He figures out the areas of your life that you're weak or vulnerable. He figures out the points of your life where you could be at high risk during a time of difficulty. And he begins to work on your behalf to risk, the, to reduce the potential of things that could be a serious threat in your life. God is always trying to work on our behalf to make it easier for us to live in this world that's difficult. And that's what he does through his covenant relationship with each of us. He's always trying to mitigate what it's like for us to live in this world. Sometimes we wish we could be perfect. It seems like it'd be easier, but sometimes it's the, jo the joy of the Lord that's set before us to make us walk through situations to make us more and more dependent on Him. See, in Florida, there was nothing I could do to change the position of my house during a storm. There's nothing I could do to turn my house around. Instead, your house is a permanent fixture. But I think it's the same thing what God's always trying to do with the position of our heart and our mind. The position of our heart is going to determine how we are going to weather the storms that are coming against us. And God is always working on our behalf, working in our heart to make it softer and more pliable so we can withstand the storms and so also he can change our mind and change our perspective. See, that's the invitation that God gives to us to understand our covenant relationship with him because as we understand our covenant relationship, we live the influence our covenant relationship with God, we're going to find it would decrease any influence that our, would negatively impact our life. And also it's going to influence our relationship with other people. So I just want to leave you today with the hope and the confidence that even though there's things influencing you, that God is more concerned about those than you are. See, this is a deal. God has called each of us to a high standard of living. But he's also said he's going to dwell inside each of us. God is in us. He is for us. He sees the wind that's coming. He sees the challenges that are coming. He sees the things that are at risk in our life. And he says, you know what? I'm going to be there for you. I want to protect you. And that's the confidence of this series that we're talking about spirituality and sexuality, that God is moving on our behalf so we can all have deep and meaningful relationships. Amen. All right, let me pray. Greg, sing us a song, and whoever needs to, like, stir the pots, you can go, so...
Stir the pots. That's a good one too. Well, all right, Father, I thank you that you are the God of covenant. And I thank you that you are the faithful God that works on our behalf when we cannot have imagined or expect or even hope for. God, I thank you that you are more concerned with our challenges and our struggles than even any of us are aware. So Lord, we thank you for that. So Lord, we live in the peace knowing that you are the God of covenant. And God, I pray that you bless each person here, that you bless the people online that are watching. And I pray, Lord, that you'd fill us with hope and encouragement today as we seek to lay our lives on the altar that you would receive glory. Lord, would you bless this food? Would you bless our fellowship? I pray that you'd bless our community. And Lord, may we truly be a community that is safe for other people to come to know you and to make sense of their life and discover who Jesus is. So God, I pray that you'd move with power as we gather as a community that you'd influence. In, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.